0: Welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. I'm Alec. And I'm Haley. And this week we have Tom Steyer on the podcast. But before we get to that, this is a reminder to follow us on social media. We're at Fly on the Wall Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you follow us, we'll follow you back. If you want to shoot us an email, email us at FlyOnTheWallPodcast at gmail.com. And finally, make sure you're subscribed to us on whatever app you listen to your podcast on. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, and most recently, Spotify. Subscribe. It's right there on whatever app you're listening to us on right now. Just click the button. It's super easy, and you'll get us in your inbox every single week.
1: After stepping down as manager of a successful hedge fund, Tom Steyer founded NextGen America in 2013, a nonprofit group that combats climate change. In 2017, Tom founded Need to Impeach, which rallies millions of Americans with a public call to impeach Donald Trump. Now here's Tom Steyer.
0: Tom Steyer, welcome to Fly on the Wall. We're excited to have you. Thanks for being with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, so we wanted to just start on your move from the private sector into politics. You left your investment firm in 2012. Uh, walk us through why you did that.
2: Well, I'd spent 35 years as a professional investor. And I actually love investing because I love puzzles. And this is a puzzle with infinite variables. And I thought learning the different learning about the different economies around the world and learning how different systems worked and learning what how companies worked was something that was incredibly, remains incredibly interesting to me. But I also felt that I was someone who'd been richly blessed and I felt an overwhelming desire to actually make some return to the society which I thought had done so much for me and which I saw as needing more people to contribute to it as opposed to you know, just work within it. So to me, I'd been dying to do it for eight years. It takes a very long time to be able to hand on a business that is a human business that you've started, it turns out. It took me eight years. And finally, I felt like I was in a position to do it. The, the firm was a- capable of withstanding my leaving. And I, you know, I felt like we had 200 people who, that was how they provided for their families. And I couldn't leave until I knew that it was going to be safe and in good hands And it was. So I did.
1: Great. And so as far as the Giving Pledge, and you're signing on to it, um, giving away the bulk of your personal fortune over your lifetime, was that a difficult decision to make?
2: No. I mean, it, it's funny, we did the, my wife and I did the Giving Pledge because we were trying to support the idea that the luckiest Americans weren't separating themselves from everybody else. The idea that we rise and fall together. And so we were really trying to support Bill Gates and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett But you know the expression, it was the sleeves off our vest? You know, it was something we were going to do no matter what. And we just said it in public because they asked us to, but there was no way we weren't going to do that anyway, honestly. So in
0: 2013, you went ahead and founded Next Gen America, a nonprofit that combats climate change, promotes social justice, uh, and encourages participation in our democracy. So how much of the work for Next Gen America is split between on-the-ground grassroots movements and marketing campaigns and working with politicians?
2: Oh, my gosh, it's overwhelmingly on the ground. I mean, what we really, when I think about what we did in, twi- I mean, it's something where it's developed over time so that like any good organization, you, get, you work on the things that go well and you get better at them and you try and develop capability at the same time that you get results. So every single year we want to have results, but we also want to build a capability so we can have more results the next year. And so when we think about 2018 last year, At NextGen, we were doing three basic things. We were doing youth organizing. So that's not working with politicians. That's straight up going around the country, being on 420 college campuses, doing a lot of stuff uh, on social media, trying to get people engaged, trying to get them registered, trying to get them turn out. We went door to door in seven states with our partners in the organized labor movement. We hit 10 million doors. That was all about trying to go to underrepresented communities who are less likely to be registered, engaged, and participating, and make sure that they, in fact, showed up in higher levels so that they could get, so that people would pay more attention to them and so they'd get, you know, a fairer deal from society. And we ran three clean energy propositions in purple states to show that Americans want 50% clean energy by 2030. And we, that's. You know, that wasn't something that's direct democracy going directly to the people and saying to them, what do you think? And so, you know, we do work, particularly in California, on specific issues. In 2018, we worked on the end to money bail. We worked on trying to get rid of diesel trucks, which are a huge cause of air pollution and asthma, particularly in low-income communities in California. We have 3.3 million people with asthma. So we work on specific issues, particularly in California, but the overwhelming bulk of what we do is related to grassroots.
1: Great. So you mentioned going to purple states and having initiatives to try to sign people up for voting. What kind of considerations do you make on the nonprofit side when you choose where to allocate your resources, and do you ever work on political things?
2: It's funny because I think we've moved away from what I would think of as traditional philanthropy. So I'll give you two examples of things that we do. We started a community bank 10 years ago, dedicated to the ideas of economic justice and environmental sustainability, with specific emphasis on women and minority-owned businesses. And we started that, we put the equity, I don't know if you know how banks work, but it's basically 10 to one debt to equity we put the equity into a foundation so that if we made money lending in a poor community, no one would think we were doing it so we could put the money in our pocket. That in fact, what we're trying to do is to have the, the impact, but also have it work from a business standpoint so we can make more loans. It's a triple bottom line. So economic justice, environmental sustainability, but also business sustainability because we're insured by the FDA, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and they don't want to hear that they're going to have to bail us out. Mm-hmm. We have to make a profit so that they'll feel comfortable insuring our deposits. But that's something where that's a billion-dollar institution at this point from zero 10 years ago. And that an, you know that isn't what you think of as a normal philanthropy, but we sit there and we go, wow, we can measure. We've made 5000 low-income housing loans in the last three years. You know, we can show how much um, clean energy we have financed. We can show the impact on jobs. We do a thing of, one of the things we do is uh, fair lending to, for used cars. Everybody needs a ride to get to work in California. In, in most of the places where we are, the public transportation is not a decent option. People need to get to work. Can you imagine anything more likely to involve um, exploitation than a used car salesman with a loan? You know, particularly, I'd say, gosh, way over half, probably 80% of our clientele, English is not their first language. You know, we get a lot of first-generation Americans. And so so now you've got a used car salesman who are famous for being deceptive. Alone, where people really don't understand a lot about finance, so the opportunity to be deceptive is great. And then you've got first-generation Americans who may not speak English that well, but and also may be very uncomfortable in that kind of um, official bank environment. So the opportunity to rip them off is gigantic. So we went into it as a way of trying to provide a decent alternative, where we'd make enough money to stay in business and make more loans, but where they, we, there was no question that we're being honest.
0: So the most recently you founded Need to impeach, which is a group that does basically what the name implies, and that's works towards uh, the impeachment uh, of President Trump. So why did you decide to put your efforts towards uh, this cause uh, after a long time you know, working on policy areas like climate change?
2: Well, I think you know for us it's, it's it's it combines the two things that I think animate everything we do. One of them is about grassroots. I mean, what we have is a uh, Petition drive, we've, been done, we've done over, we have 7.7 million people who've signed the petition. If anyone's listening to this podcast, needtoimpeach.com, please sign up. But genuinely, I mean, we have 7.7 million people who've done so. It's the largest, fastest growing list in America. But I think the other thing that's true about this is where, you know, from our standpoint, this is about justice. You know, no one's above the law that the richest, most powerful, most elite people have to abide, should abide by the laws more than anyone else. If they're so lucky, if the system has treated them so well, if they have gotten the advantage of hundreds of years of Americans sacrificing for our system, then they bloody well should, you know, do the right thing. And if they don't, then it's up. I think our system should absolutely insist on it. And that's what we have. We have the most corrupt president in American history. And I believe that for the sake of the country and for the sake of our value system and who we are and of justice itself, that he should be held to account.
1: So stepping more into the political realm, there are politicians in office, specifically in the Senate, that disagree with you, that don't believe that. This there are. The now <laughs> you tell me. Um, so who do they well, vote then, for? <laughs> Grant. Um, now that that impeachment process is controlled by uh, Republicans, still, how does that make your work more difficult or change how your strategy? Well, you know, is?
2: it's it's funny because obviously we know that our strategy is really. To appeal to the American people. You know, I, don't, I think you've known me for several minutes. <laughs> I, I am not of the opinion that I'm such so brilliant or so articulate or so moving that Republican senators are going to go, oh, I really didn't realize I've just changed my whole worldview, Tom. Thank you so much. What we think is if the American people can get the information, we trust the American people directly. That's why we've been calling for hearings that's why we've been calling for all the information to go directly to the american people because regardless of whether they're democrats or independents or republicans we believe that we share values and that we believe we believe in justice and we don't believe people should be above the law and so if people get a chance to see what we think is in the public record but where it's presented to them forcefully online through public hearings i believe americans Get a chance to see something, that, and they'll have a strong reaction, and that that's what counts. That is actually the body of Americans' opinion and reaction that we believe in, and that we trust, and that we're trying to enable.
0: Now, are you looking when you say you know you're you've been pushing for hearings and everything? Are you looking for hearings specifically on the topic of impeachment, rather than just more generally around um, elements of the of the Russia probe and other conflicts of interests, uh, interests that the House Judiciary Committee's been investigating? And do you think now that Dems control the House that um, those hearings come sooner rather than later?
2: Well, the Dems have controlled the House for three months, and we've had one hearing, which was Michael Cohen in front of the House Oversight Committee. And I know there have been some requests for more information coming out of that hearing from House Judiciary. But, you know, this is something where we need, if you go back to Watergate, there were literally hearings every single day on TV. It was, the, it was the biggest soap opera in the history of the United States. If you think about the two hearings that we've had in the last year, that both took place, I believe, in Washington, D.C., where you two people reside. Mm-hmm. One was Brett Kavanaugh, and one was Michael Cohen. And I would say that's exactly what we're looking for, for the American people to get firsthand direct evidence so they can judge themselves. Look, people didn't see those things similarly. Some people saw them one way, some people saw them the other. That's fine with us. We believe that if the American people see this, they're going to have a strong reaction. And we believe that reaction will be that justice should be served and no one's above the law. And if you have contempt for the law and you routinely break your oath of office, that's not okay.
1: So politically, your organization would prioritize supporting candidates that would look forward to impeaching the president rather than having main policy goals on, say, health care or climate change?
2: Well, I would say we aren't going to, you know, from our standpoint, every candidate is an amalgamation of a bunch of things. And so, you know, are we going to support a candidate who is not a climate hawk? No, straight up no. But are we going to, you know, from our standpoint, what we really want, what we believe in is grassroots, what we believe in is Turnout, the most participation by the most Americans across every category. And we believe that happens when you tell the truth, that when you tell the truth about difficult issues, because difficult issues are what Americans are grappling with. So if you don't want to talk about the difficult issues because you're worried about it, then ha- when have you ever solved a problem that you aren't willing to talk about? I would go with never. You just hope it's going to go away. What we've seen in Washington is that the even the most straightforward but difficult issues haven't gone away. If you think about it, gun violence. You know, New Zealand took nine days to solve gun violence. We've had decades of it. We've refused to act. We have 11 million people living in the United States without papers, undocumented people. You would think that we would have some form of comprehensive immigration reform, that a, a government would come up with that. We're not even discussing it. You know, you go down the list, We're the only country in the world that is not part of the Paris Climate Accords. The only country in the world. It's 194 to 1. You know, so you go down the list and what you see is dysfunction. And I think that dysfunction is based around the idea that people either don't want to tell the truth or they don't want to reach a solution. So So, as
1: a follow-up, as far as grassroots movements, do you you have any thought that this might mobilize the Trump base and have them turn out more in 2020?
2: You know, we heard that in 2018. Everyone said, oh my gosh, you're going to turn out the Trump base. What we found was turnout was up 60% in 2018. Democrats won by 9%. Youth vote where we were organizing went up by more than double. So no, I'm not worried. The Trump vote came out in 2018. The Trump vote is going to come out in 2020. The question is, are we going to come out? If we come out, we win. There are many more of us. If you look at 2014, turnout was 37% nationwide. If you look at 2018, it was 57%. 60% move and Democrats won by 9%. So no, I am not worried that Trump voters will turn out in 2020 because I know they'll turn out in 2020. The question is not whether they'll turn out. The question is whether it will turn out because if you talk to people your age and say, why don't you vote? People always say, We don't think it matters. Neither party tells the truth. No one addresses the real issues. And what we're saying is, okay, we hear you. We're gonna tell the truth, we're gonna represent you, and we're gonna deal with the real issues that confront the American people.
0: Now we're nearly out of time, so one last question that we'd be remiss not to ask you um, is this week, uh, or last week I guess, uh, Robert Mueller submitted his report to Attorney General Bill Barr. Now we've only seen a summary of the report from Uh, Attorney General Barr, we haven't seen the full report, at least as of this recording and I'm not holding my breath, Um, but Barr said in his summary that Trump and his team did not conspire uh, with the Russians. Do you think this makes your goal harder to achieve and does it change your approach at all?
2: Well, let me say that for an entire year, we said, this isn't about the Mueller report. People were saying, we need to wait for the Mueller report. That's the only thing we have. And we kept saying, no, this is not about the Mueller report. We can see corruption in the public record on a daily basis. We can see obstruction of justice. So, the, And we said, please don't make it about the Mueller report. Let's have public hearings. Let's get the facts on these simple questions in front of the American people. OK, a bunch of people said, let's wait for the Mueller report. And then Mr. Trump's hand-picked attorney general interpreted it for America and said, there's nothing here, which we figured he would say. We still don't have the Mueller report. Does it make it more difficult? Yes, I think that you know they, we have the Trump camp claiming they've been exonerated. But actually what's happened is we still don't have the Mueller report. We don't know what What we always said was we're very interested in getting the information from the Mueller report. We're demanding to see the full Mueller report for the American people so we can make up our minds. But do I, has it changed my mind at all about whether this is the most corrupt president in American history? No. Does it change my mind about whether there was obstruction of justice? No. We'd love to see the Mueller report, but what is going on here is an attempt to massage the facts and to try and control the framework. And I felt from for over a year, if you go back and check, we've been saying don't accept this framework. That the only crime that you can be impeached for is colluding with the Russians to hack the election. We've been saying all along, there's plenty of stuff in the public record that shows this is the most corrupt president. Please hold public hearings. Please get his tax returns. Please release the Mueller report to the American people, so that we can all have our reactions, and have a series of hearings, so that we can be involved and see what our values are. Tom Sawyer, thanks again so much for coming on flying the ball. Thank you, guys. What a pleasure to be at Georgetown.
0: That does it for this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. As a reminder, like I said at the beginning, follow us on social media. We're at Fly on the Wall pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I promise we'll follow you back. If you want to shoot us an email, it's flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, subscribe to us on whatever app you're listening to us on right now. iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you're getting your podcast. Thanks for listening, and happy Passover.
1: And happy Easter.
0: Have a great week.